2: That's moe, M-O-W-I, M-O-W-I salmon.us to learn more. You know, I grew up with Vermont farmers who made do with tools they had on hand. A hammer, pliers, uh, and baling twine, of course, for most jobs. When I became a cook, however, I found that having just the right knife or maybe the perfect carbon steel skillet made all the difference. And the right tool also added pleasure to my cooking. I truly enjoyed my time prepping as well as cooking food. And that also goes for a car. The all-new Lexus GX has an exceptional capability that will have you seeing possibilities you never knew existed. It's advanced technology and luxurious interior mean that wherever you go, you'll never go without. And that includes available dynamic sky panorama glass roof, available front row massaging seats, available 33-inch all-terrain tires, and available multi-terrain Select. Live up to the all-new Lexus GX, luxury beyond limits. Experience amazing at your Lexus dealer. Buying furniture is not easy. You want well-designed pieces that fit into a modern lifestyle, yet the look should be timeless. And you want a custom experience creating furniture designed specifically for your space. My suggestion is that you check out Cozy, a North American company that thoughtfully designs furniture for modern living. That's C-O-Z-E-Y dot com. Transform your living space today with Cozy. Visit Cozy.com to start customizing your furniture today. Hi, this is Christopher Kimball. Thanks for downloading this week's podcast. You can go to our website, 177milkstreet.com, to stream our television show, get our recipes, or take our free online cooking classes. Enjoy the show. (laughs) This is Mostly Radio from PRX. I'm your host, Christopher Kimball. Today, Diane Kochilis, author of My Greek Table, explains how to make great dishes with stale bread, the definition of Greek yogurt, and what Americans get wrong about cooking at home.
3: Americans tend to be very exacting and a little bit uptight, from my experience, when they cook. And it has to be convenient. And if it requires, you know, opening a package and actually emptying it into a pot, that's way too much work. Okay, get, get, get it all out. Okay, let's I, like I'm getting it all vent, out. Vent. <laughs> you know, I'm getting it all out.
2: Also coming up, we find out what happened when Colorado changed the legal definition of a sandwich. We present a fresh new take on spaghetti puttanesca. But first up today, it's my interview with Emily Wallace and Kate Medley. They helped curate O Moldy Night, a one-night-only exhibit in Durham, North Carolina, that invited community members to submit their best Jello sculptures. Kate and Emily, welcome to Milk Street.
4: We're glad to be here. Yeah, thanks so much.
2: So both of you have worked now on this whole issue of Jello, on uh, the history of gelatin. M- maybe we could go back to the beginning. So um, gelatin was made from calves' feet, among other things, and it wasn't until about the mid nineteenth century that uh, a real gelatin product was invented. But they were still using the boiling the calf sweet method well into the 1800s, right?
5: That's our understanding, Chris, that it was sort of born out of this um, tradition of decadence and royalty because it did demand such time and expense. And then it wasn't until the late 1800s and early 1900s that it was somewhat democratized by way of a cough syrup maker um, named Pearl B. Waite who made a mixture of gelatin and sugar and named that Jello?
2: So then what happened? So now we have Jell-O. It comes in a box. What did Americans do with that?
5: I mean, I think a little bit of everything. <laughs> um, in the South, I think our experience was that congealed salads saw a huge rise as that, as a salad, as a vegetable dish.
2: Could you explain that? Because I've, I've seen the same thing at, at church suppers in Vermont for years. Um how did jello with celery in it or whatever it's got how did that become a salad <laughs>
6: <laughs> You'd
2: have
5: to ask my mother or many many mothers and grandmothers in the south but growing up in Mississippi I can count the times on one hand in the 80s that we had a green salad to precede a fancy meal It was almost always a congealed salad and the one that my mother would always make was orange and had canned mandarin oranges in it and marshmallows in it. Mm.
4: Yeah, that, my mom still makes a mandarin orange salad is what she calls it.
2: So tell us about O Moldy Night, the, uh, the Jell-O exhibition, how it got started, and talk about some of the sample molds.
4: Yeah, just about a year ago with another friend and colleague, Kate Elia, we put together an exhibit that was a pop-up art show of about 40 entries of molded foods.
2: Some of them were very appealing as you'd really want to eat them. Some of them were a little bit less appealing. Just talk about the visuals here. What what were the ones you guys really liked a lot visually?
4: One I loved in name and sort of visually was called Bojello, which (laughs) took its cue from a southern fried chicken chain, Bojangles, and featured as the base sweet tea and then uh, fried chicken tenders inside and then had piping of Bojangles mashed potatoes around the edge. It pretty inspired.
2: Did some of these really taste great, too?
5: Yeah. I mean, it, they, they kind of ran the gamut. Some it's of like, them tasted terrible, but a lot of them tasted great.
2: Like, what, what was um, your favorite, couple of your favorites?
5: I mean, the Jell-O Gin Fizz was
4: awesome.
2: Oh.
5: Um, the Lady Edison Pork Jelly, which uh, visually somewhat resembled a brain, uh, was <laughs> definitely a crowd favorite taste-wise.
4: Yeah, same. There was one that was shaped like a boot that was, it was all made out of the crushed pineapple and um, sort of other fruits that it really sort of harkened back to what I grew up with.
2: So what, what were one or two of the ones that looked better than they tasted?
4: I have to go on the record and say this. <laughs> I'm just kidding. Bojello was beautiful. I mean, it was one of my favorite molds, but it, it required a lot of gelatin to make the chicken tenders stay upright in the So it had that the, sort
2: of nasty bitter flavor?
4: Yeah. And also a chicken tender and a congealed salad is not that great.
5: As it turns
2: out.
6: <laughs> yeah. Who would have <laughs> thought? Right?
2: right. So wh- where are we headed with Jell O these days? Are gelatin sales falling or, or is the South still making lots of jello salads and, and, and Vermont churches?
5: It's a great question. Uh when we put together this art show. We didn't know if a dozen people would show up or 25. We were surprised to have about 500 people show up, which, you hmm. know, I'm going to go out on a limb and say Jelly is coming back.
2: <laughs> so anything else uh, you loved or interesting entries in the exhibit?
5: Um, there was one particularly interesting entry from a woman named Ginger Wagg, who is a performance artist based in Carborough, North Carolina. And so she was the mold And she draped her body in sheets of fruit leather, apple flavor, if memory serves. (laughs) And she stood on that pedestal all night encouraging people to pull the sheets of fruit leather off of her body and taste them. (laughs) I will say from an
4: official capacity, we were lucky our very newly elected mayor of Durham, Steve Shull, agreed to be one of the judges for the event. And it was so funny, the night before... Kate received a couple of emails from him where he had stayed up late writing limericks
5: about Jello. o
2: do, do you have any of the limericks?
5: I brought one. Okay. Um, so this is from Mayor Steve Shule, who was one of three judges for what we called the shimmies. <laughs> there once was a large orange aspic whose sagging was really quite drastic. The diners all giggled as it joggled and jiggled, but that aspic proved rather elastic.
2: <laughs> this is, well, at, at least that's a good use of, of the time of an elected official, though, right? I mean, it could be worse. <laughs> right? I and mean, it was like yeah. one of
4: the first things he
5: did in office.
2: Um, so y- these were the shimmy awards. Uh, in what, what, were there different categories and what won?
5: Um, the best in show was called the crown molding. <laughs>
6: uh,
4: we had the, for the best jiggle. The judges went around and kind of poked each mold. It was called the back that aspic award. And that went to uh, Debbie Moose, who created what she called the Wobbly White House. So it was a very unstable white house made of gelatin. (laughs) We had the My Jello Americans Choice Award. And that went to a musician and folklorist, Sarah Bell, who recreated Ophelia drowning out of aspic. Wow. It was crazy. It had all these delicate herbs and flowers around it. Um, Really stunning. I mean... I. Uh, saw a woman cry by it. (laughs) Not kidding.
2: No, no, wait, 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 wait. Uh, One of the people who came to the awards was actually crying next to it? She teared up. I saw it happen. So so this is like the world's nightmare buffet, right? Because once you start cutting into these things, things got messy pretty quickly. I mean, it, it probably was kind of a mess by the time the night was over, right?
5: They had to have the carpets professionally cleaned yes, the next day. Yes, I was going to say. <laughs> we haven't been invited back yet, but we're holding out
2: hope. Well, are the shimmies now going to be an annual event? I think it's fabulous.
5: Um, there's been a lot of requests for that. Uh, there seems to be a lot of interest in seeing the shimmies go down again. But I will say part of the magic of this whole event, Chris, was conjuring it up and not really knowing what to expect. Right. And, and all of these people really taking a chance on this pretty wacky concept and, and really over-delivering at every turn It was pretty magical.
2: Kate and Emily, thank you. Uh, o Moldy Night, the Jell-O exhibition, was a huge success. And one person actually cried. Thank you so much.
5: Thank Thanks you for having us.
2: That was Emily Wallace and Kate Medley. You can check out photos from the O Moldy Night exhibit on our website, MilkStreetRadio.com. Right now, my co-host, Sarah Malt and I will demystify a few of your great culinary mysteries. Sarah is, of course, the author of Home Cooking 101 and the star of Sarah's Weeknight Meals on public television. Sarah, how are you?
7: I'm great, Chris, and I think it's time to
2: get to the phones. Open up the lines. Let's go. Welcome to Milk Street. Who's calling?
8: Hi, this is Will from Chapel Hill, North Carolina. Will, how are you? I'm great. And you? Pretty good. So I have been having a trouble since I was in my 20s. I've tried it again in my 30s and in my 40s. I can never get dry beans to cook in time. No matter what the recipe says, I double or triple it, and then it, then it takes another two hours.
2: You're cooking them in the same place? You haven't moved to different places in the country? This is the same You know, house. I've
8: tried different places. You know, I've lived here in, in Chapel Hill for a long time, so that's where I've done most of my cooking. But I've tried internationally as well.
7: And you're talking about any dried bean?
8: Any dried beans. I've tried black beans. I've tried your um, black bean soup recipe. Mm-hmm. I've tried the little red beans that are common in Central America.
2: You said something about doubling or tripling the recipe.
8: I double or triple the cooking time, Oh. and it seems like that even then, like, when it's almost mealtime, like, there's a little bit of firmness there. That Are you buying the
2: beans always from where?
8: From different places, local supermarket, but again, it, it's been multiple places.
7: Do you soak the beans overnight?
8: I've done that some of the time. It seems to help, but it still doesn't seem to do everything.
7: Do you add acid of some kind, like tomatoes or something, when you're cooking the beans?
8: Let's see. Um, not all the time. I tried just cooking the red beans plain, Yeah. and I've tried the black bean soup recipe are the two ones I've tried most recently.
2: The three things, uh-huh. the only three things we know, hard water will could slow down cooking to adding acid.
7: You should not add acid.
2: Acid will slow down the acid. cooking because okay. the water has a hard time getting through the outer layer. And then if the beans are really old. The age of the beans. But you've done this in different places, so it can't be the hard water, I wouldn't think. You're buying Mm -hmm. beans from different places, so that's probably not it. And you don't always add acid or tomato to the beans when you cook them.
7: You know what? I would say, though, something I learned from Chris is soaking the beans overnight in salted water makes a huge difference.
8: Salted water?
7: Yes, OK, because it tenderizes the skins and also flavors the beans. It's like brining the beans, mm-hmm. but they will cook better, more evenly. And also soaking them overnight means they will cook in less time. Chris, do you know, if there's okay. an actual ratio of salt or just it should taste a little. Salty? Two
2: tablespoons of diamond crystal salt, not table salt to two quarts of water. Is that right? I okay. think that's right. I think, in general, that will certainly cut down your cooking time because they absorb a tremendous amount of water overnight. They're double the volume. Yeah. For years, we said don't salt
7: No, it was the beans. just like acid. Those are the two yeah. things you shouldn't okay. do.
2: And so it turns out that if you don't salt the beans ahead of time, you don't get much flavor
7: well, that too. in the
2: beans. and We found it didn't slow down the cooking time. That was not true.
7: No. They freeze beautifully. You know, you can freeze them in two cups oh, really? of use. Yeah, them. yeah That's after a good you cooked idea. them. It's a oh, great thing to wow. have in the freezer. And you can
2: freeze rice, too.
7: Yeah. I would try that. I would try that.
2: Right. Soak in in salted water. That should really help a lot. Yeah.
8: Yeah. I'll keep at it. Okay.
2: Okay. All right. Well, we'll take
9: care.
8: Take care. Thank you, guys. I love your work.
7: Bye-bye. Welcome to Milk Street. Who's calling?
9: Hi, this is Joseph from Austin, Texas.
7: Oh, I love Austin, Texas. How can we help you today?
9: Yeah, I was having trouble baking sweet potato fries. I've tried a lot of different methods. I've tried different oils. I've tried different cuts. I've even tried different sweet potatoes. And I can never seem to get them crisp. They're usually soggy.
7: Well, that's understandable. They don't have the same starch as white potatoes. So, you know, you have to give them a little extra help. One thing that I think would help enormously is to toss them in some cornstarch, Um, you know, just lightly coat them and cook them in a hot oven, like 425, 450 on an oiled tray and don't crowd them. I assume you're not crowding them.
9: No, no. That that was one of the things that I felt that did work. I cut them into larger pieces and I've uh, sprayed the tray with oil as well to kind of help Keep it from sticking and burning. But those are the only things I've done that's really helped. I've not tried the cornstarch, but uh, that, that might be a good idea. Is there anything to do with, like, the placement of
2: the oven rack that could help?
7: I would say to, to cook them in the middle of the oven to tell you
2: the truth. So are, are, you, are you brown. preheating the baking pan? Not the baking
9: pan itself, no. I'm i would just preheat. preheating uh, the oven.
2: I would put the pan in the oven and preheat it, and that would really help. The other problem is, let's just be honest for a moment. I've tried to make sweet potato fries many times; they never come out as well as They're just not a regular be as crispy. fry because there's just full of moisture and the starch is very different texture. Yeah, but use a lot of heat in a preheated pan would certainly help. And also, I've talked to a lot of people at restaurants about making fries, and a lot of people use potato starch, which you can also Same buy thing. in the supermarket. So you might want to try potato starch
7: instead of corn starch. Yeah. I would cut them thinner so that you have a higher ratio of outside to inside. I agree. And the other thing is just turn them once. So put them in, say, a 420 oven, and they'll get a little brown around the edges, particularly the ends. But don't worry about it. But just turn them once. Turn them at 15 minutes. And other than that, don't mess with them.
2: Why only flip them once?
7: So they get more of a crust. Oh. Because if you keep moving them, they won't. Good point. Yeah. At any rate, I think all of that will help.
9: Okay. okay. All right. And so put them in there for 15 minutes, flip them once, and then put them in for the rest of the time.
7: Another 15. So I'd say about a half an hour total. Excellent. Or until Excellent. they're... Well, no.
2: You, if, you know, if you're 425 or 450, it might be less than that. It might yeah. be 20 minutes. Well, but, watch them. It's like check
7: anything them. else. Check them. You know, the old famous mm. thing that chefs used to say, or until they're done, which essentially means pay attention. Don't okay. just rely on a timer. And let us know how it goes.
9: Okay, I will. Thank
2: you. <laughs> Give it okay. a shot. I
7: hope it works. All right, Joseph. All right, I will. Thanks. Bye-bye.
2: This is Milk Street Radio. If you have a cooking question or need to resolve a culinary debate, call us, 855-426-9843. One more time, 855-426-9843, or email us at questions at MilkStreetRadio.com. Welcome to Milk Street. Who's calling?
10: This is Leah. I'm calling from Lexington, Massachusetts. How are you? I'm well. How are you?
2: You sound familiar.
10: Yes. So I called you a little while ago about a problem I was having making a gluten-free and dairy-free key lime tart. Oh and I was having trouble getting it to set. It was this recipe where you had to fold in egg whites. And then somehow when I took it out of the oven, it's just all of the filling sort of leaked through the bottom of the pie crust. It was huh. sort of a disaster, but. My kids actually called it the key lime disaster, and they loved it because they (laughs) ate the entire thing. They thought it was so delicious. So I was really determined to make it work. And you suggested that I try adding sugar to the egg whites. I think Sarah suggested that. Right. Right. Because I was using a sort of a coconut based evaporated milk product. So I tried Sarah's trick, and then I I really misbehaved with the scientific method because I actually changed three things at once, and it worked. I did use Sarah's suggestion with the egg whites, and the thing that I did differently this time was I found a sweetened condensed coconut milk, whereas the first time I had used evaporated coconut milk and added sugar and boiled it down, but I don't think I boiled it down enough.
2: Oh, that's interesting. Because that's very. I interesting. didn't know there was a sweetened condensed.
10: It's just labeled sweetened condensed coconut milk. Huh? Where did you find it? Where'd you buy it? I bought it at Whole Foods.
7: Really? Yeah. Okay, that's terrific because that means it's pretty, you know, available.
10: That was the first thing I changed, and then the second thing I changed was adding some sugar to the egg whites, which definitely did stabilize them a bit, I think. And then the third thing I did, and maybe you can tell me why this happened. I had to bake it twice as long as the recipe suggested.
2: And how long and at what temperature?
10: I think it was at 375. Oh. I baked it for over half an hour. Well, that, and the original th- recipe said 15 minutes.
2: I think over half an hour sounds right to me. Yeah, me too. Yeah, I think the original recipe was wrong, or, or there was something else in it that made it set up fast. But if you think about a custard pie like a pumpkin pie, yeah, you would bake it right. more than 15 Absolutely. minutes. Absolutely. Yeah.
7: Well, that's a happy ending.
6: And you was get credit excellent. though.
7: Excellent. It was so good we ate the entire thing in two days. So, so the kids liked it as much as the disastrous version? <laughs> they loved it much more. So that is a happy ending good for we both, you. Chris and I both now know about a new ingredient, which is I've never heard of that. Sweetened Condensed. Condensed yeah. coconut milk. Coconut milk. Good to know. Wonderful. Leah, well,
3: congratulations.
7: Thank you. So thank, you. Much. thank you. Yeah, thank, thank you. you. Thank you. Okay, okay, take care. Oh geez.
2: You want to take a victory lap now, sir? I do, I do. You're listening to Milk Street Radio. I'm Christopher Kimball. Up next my interview with Diane Cochilis, author of My Greek Table. That's coming up after the break.
11: This is Jason Perkins again. Just want to say thanks to everyone at Allagash for sharing. You can try Allagash White at home, too. Head to Allagash.com locator to find Allagash White near you.
10: For 21 plus only, please drink responsibly. Allagash Brewing Company, Portland, Maine.
2: This is Mill Street Radio. I'm your host, Christopher Kimball. Diane Cochillas is a born and bred New Yorker but she found happiness on the Greek island of Ikaria, her father's home. Cochilas is the author of 18 books on Greek and Mediterranean cuisine. Her latest is My Greek Table. Diane, how are you? Welcome to Milk Street. Thank you. It's a pleasure to have you right in the studio. I loved your book, My Greek Table. You know, it's not just Spanakopita yet again. You've really taken a fresh look at a lot of these recipes, and also I learned a lot about how to cook from the book. I mean, the idea of how to put things together. Coming from you, that's a tremendous
3: compliment.
2: Well, I'm always looking for better ways to cook. So l- let's go back. You you were young when your father died. You were 10 years old. You eventually went back to his village. Uh, just tell us about the village and what that experience was like.
3: Well, that was 1972. Greece was a completely different place. It was very, uh, still very pure. And especially a place like Icaria, which was completely off the, the beaten track. It took us, I think it was a 16-hour ferry boat ride, and then another two or three hours to get to our side of the island on these incredible dirt roads <laughs> that I had never you know, experienced before. The island at the time had, it had just been recently uh, wired for electricity, so people were still living a very, very traditional lifestyle. And you know, I was a New York City kid so it really i remember my reaction was very visceral and i remember thinking to myself back then i totally get this place and i totally love it it's it the feeling that the, the feeling of inner freedom that i experienced at that age um and then in in, in ensuing summers after that has that has definitely shaped my life, uh, you know, in 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 the best possible ways.
2: Does that freedom still exist today in Greece? You you mentioned that back in the seventies uh, it was a different place than today. How has it changed?
3: It does exist. It certainly exists, Sanikaria. I mean, you know, the, this idea that you can the, if you're if you're in the village, things are open until really really late, or I should say until really early in the morning. And it's not unusual to see kids out in the town, uh, you know, sort of square, uh, playing as their parents are having dinner, late dinners, you know, or then moving on to have maybe a glass of wine somewhere and then friends come by. It's this very, a very unstructured existence, which I think is the key to, you know, inner happiness. I mean, (laughs) you know, we're not ruled by the clock. And that's something that I think people, at least from that island, from the island Vicaria, carry in their DNA let's talk about food. Stale bread.
2: I just love every culture that uses simple ingredients, sour milk, stale bread. So how do you use uh, stale bread in your cooking?
3: There are some really interesting recipes, old recipes, probably not not in use anymore. But you know a few of the classic dips that we know, uh, things that are almost you know in the in the sort of common lingo now, like skordalia, the the garlic dip, um, tarmosalata, salata, the fish roe spread that you find in Greek restaurants. Those often uh, utilize stale bread. There are a few recipes. There's one recipe from the island of Tinos. It's there's it's a local recipe for kind of like. Um, It's almost like a bread pudding, but, you know, that's not really a concept that Greeks are familiar with, but it's basically stale bread and artichokes and cheese and eggs baked together.
2: Also, let's talk about clay pots for a moment. You know, is there something special about cooking with that kind of pot uh, that's very different for you than cooking with a metal pot?
3: I think there is. Um, I have a few clay pots. There are some clay pots that are... Specific to different regions in Greece and shaped accordingly, and one of the one of the sweetest experiences I've, I've ever had there was on the island of Sifnos, and on Sunday mornings, this is still a tradition. They on, actually on Saturday evenings, local families bring this. It's a it's a tall clay pot that's somewhat tapered at the top, so it's a narrow sort of a narrow mouth and then a wider base, and there's a, a cover. And oftentimes they'll seal they'll seal it with a little bit of dough. But they make a traditional chickpea soup hmm. and they'll bring it to the village baker and it just sits in his oven, which is not fired up but is still quite warm and it you know it sits there all night. And this still happens? They'll yes, use this the... still happens. Okay. And on Sunday mornings after church, the families go by the, the bakery and the baker knows, you know, which pot belongs to which family. And uh that's you know that's still a tradition, but in terms of the flavor that that clay imparts, I mean, I think that clay has memory. Mm. I think it has flavor memory, and it's it becomes more complex. You know the more you use a, a clay pot, the richer that memory becomes
2: so there are places in in the book where I'm going like, okay. Diane's like pushing the envelope now, like making file. Okay, so just talk to me about why. I only have so many years left. Should I spend some substantial... Portion of that time trying to make my own filo dough. <laughs> I mean, really?
3: Oh, you need to just spend 15 minutes with me, okay. and I'll teach you how to do it. Right. It's really easy.
2: So, how do you make
3: it? It's it's very easy. I mean, we're not there. There's filo and there's phyllo. So, I'm not talking about the really thin, you know, right. the gossamer sheets that you need to stretch over a, a pastry uh, table. You know, that's that's a different art, and it's not that's it's not that difficult to do that, but. You, You know, you do need a certain skill level, which I'm sure you have. But to make phyllo at home for a nice, you know, spinach pie or any other kind of savory pie uh, is basically – it's almost a two-to-one ratio of flour to liquid. So say I've got a pound of – say four cups of flour. That's about – you know, this is not an exact art, but it's about one – a little bit more than one and three-quarter cups of liquid. And again, that might need to, it might be a combination of water and olive oil, or water, olive oil, and and Greek yogurt, which gives the mm-hmm. final texture a certain springiness. And I always put something else acidic in there, so either vinegar or a little bit of wine, or maybe some ouzo for flavor. And, I knew the ouzo was going to show up. Yeah, yeah of course. Uh, it, well, it's just it's this nice underlying sort of freshness, and then just with a rolling pin, it's extremely easy to work with. It's very durable. You from a. A ball, say about two inches in diameter, you'll probably get a piece. Easily get a piece. You'll easily get a piece that's eighteen inches really in diameter. Yeah, Hmm.
2: finely rolled out.
3: Yeah, it's easy to do. It's much easier than people think, and very gratifying, right? I mean, you know, for me, I don't know. The two two cheapest shrinks are you know swimming and making dough. Um, Let's talk
2: about Greek yogurt. So this is an opportunity for you to vent about Greek yogurt in the supermarket. So go right ahead.
3: <laughs> well, some of the Greek yogurt in American supermarkets is is pretty authentic. And some of it is not authentic. It's it's been uh, thickened with various thickening agents. It hasn't really been strained. That's, you know, that's what you're looking for. I mean, for me, I think to my mind and to my palate, the greatest difference is that the American palate is not it's uh it's not inured to sour sour right. taste. so Greek yogurt has been is less sour in this country. Uh, if you go to you know small producers in Greece the the yogurt is incredibly sour. it's so delicious and there are different there are different types of yogurt in Greece. so what we know is Greek yogurt in the United States is actually just one of Several different types of yogurt. There's a wonderful sheep's milk yogurt that comes usually in a little clay bowl, with um, you know the skin on top, and it's it's just to die for. It's it's so delicious.
2: You grew up in New York. I did. You spent a lot of time in Greece. You have a house there now. Um, could you just talk about how Americans cook versus? I know this is so general versus the way Greeks
3: cook. Greeks, you know, wherever they are on the planet, never think there's enough food. <laughs> so <laughs> there's always, you know, more than anyone can possibly eat. And it never gets thrown away. It either gets given away to the guests, you know, who are there or, you know, eating the next day, yeah. repurposed, whatever. And there are lots of recipes for, you know, lots of repurposed uh, lentil dishes, for example, and other things. But um, so I mean I think that's those are two main differences. Uh, uh, Americans tend to be very exacting and a little bit uptight from my experience when they cook. Um and I think a lot of that just comes from being so you know especially the you know the, the last couple of generations the last 20 or 30 years I mean people have lived with this myth that oh my I have no time and it has to be convenient. And if it requires, you know, opening a package and actually emptying it into a pot and then actually heating it, that's way too much work. <laughs> okay, so, get, get,
2: get, get it all out. Okay? Yeah, Let's I, like I'm getting it all vent, out. Vent. <laughs>
3: you know, I'm getting it all out. But, I mean, I cook every day for my kids. But I think for me that's the main lesson when, you, when you're when you know, teaching somebody how to cook is li- really get take a look at it understand kind of the basic components, you know, learn to be flexible. If you don't have parsley in the house and you have basil or, you know, vice versa, you can most likely switch things out without ruining a recipe or without changing its identity. Uh, So kind of just relax, pour yourself a glass of wine and have a good time.
2: Diane, this has been uh, an enormous pleasure. Thank you for joining us here at Milk Street.
3: Well, thank you for having me.
2: That was chef and cookbook author Diane Kochilist. Her latest book is called My Greek Table, Authentic Flavors and Modern Home Cooking From My Kitchen to Yours. So what happened to Greek cooking? Back in the 70s, it was a really hot cuisine. Greek yogurt, moussaka, spanakopita, pastitsio, saganaki, souvlaki, tzatziki, feta, fava, grilled octopus, of course, Greek salad, Greek coffee, and ouzo. And the 70s also had David Bowie, Star Wars, Led Zeppelin, and Starsky and Hutch. So it's time to rethink the 70s. Maybe the lava lamp wasn't such a bad idea after all. It's time to chat with Catherine Smart about this week's recipe, spaghetti puttanesca. Catherine, how are you? I'm good, Chris. Our editor, J.M. Hirsch, just came back from Naples. He spends a lot of time in Italy because we discover The Italians cook some classics totally differently than the way we think we should cook them here. Naples is home to Puttanesca. That tends to be a saucy dish we think simmers a long time. It uses anchovies. It turns out it's none of those things. What is it?
1: Well, Chris, it is a simple kind of pantry pasta, but actually you make the sauce in a skillet. It comes together really quickly. It's reduced down to a really, really thick sauce. It's not at all watery or soupy. And it has a lot of flavor, but not from anchovies. There's a couple kinds of olives. There's capers. And it's a really flavorful sauce to be absorbed by the pasta.
2: Nothing is sacred. No (laughs) anchovies in puttanesca. Now, the other thing is, every time I've gone to Italy, I never get garlic breath. And I've asked this question for 40 years now. Why is it that in Italy, you don't get overpowered by garlic? Well, in this recipe, they do something really interesting with the garlic. What do they do?
1: That's right, Chris. So before you saute any of your aromatics, you're actually making a garlic oil. You cook the cloves of garlic in the oil, and once they've released their flavor, you toss those cloves.
2: So you cook this sauce, which is sort of on the dry side. You cook your pasta. How do you finish it?
1: Well, you want to make sure you're cooking your pasta shy of al dente because it's going to finish in the sauce. You're going to add some reserved juice from those canned tomatoes you're going to use as well as some of the pasta water and you're going to finish cooking the pasta in the sauce What so really absorbs most of the flavor.
2: So a 20-minute puttanesca sauce. It's obviously a great pantry sauce. It's not garlicky, no anchovies, and uh, it's easy to make. Thank you.
1: Thanks, Chris. You can find the recipe for spaghetti puttanesca at 177milkstreet.com.
2: You're listening to Milk Street Radio. Coming up, Dan Pashman and I discuss the legal definition of a sandwich. We'll be right back. If you enjoy Milk Street Radio, please take a moment to rate and review us on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. This helps other people find the show and also encourages them to listen. Thanks. You know, I grew up with Vermont farmers who made do with tools they had on hand. That's moe, M O W I, salmon.us to learn more.
12: Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello? fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com.
2: This is Milk Street Radio. I'm Christopher Kimball. Right now, Sarah Malt and I will be tackling a few more of your culinary questions.
7: Welcome to Milk Street. Who's calling? Nadina
6: Cole from Phoenix, Arizona.
7: Hello, Nadina. How can we help you today?
6: I'm mystified by Vietnamese or Thai fish sauce.
7: Ah. Tell us how.
6: Well, I thought it was the new big thing to use, and I'm a fairly creative and adventurous cook, but I did not like this.
2: What was the recipe you used it in? How much did you use?
6: I used it with uh, shrimp. It was kind of a marinade and um, it was way too salty, and it had lime juice in it, and it was way too sour.
2: Was it a sauce or just a marinade for the shrimp?
6: Well, it was supposed to be a marinade, and it's supposed to be grilled, but I wasn't grilling, so I thought I'd use it as kind of a Thai version of uh, scampi. It was not good. I, so I so in other his, words, he
2: used his it his as his a sauce. sauce? Right. Oh, well... <laughs> That's okay. the problem I right mean, there. I mean, if you're going to use fish sauce as part of a marinade, that would be quite different than using it as a sauce. Because you're right, fish sauce can I mean, be strong. I mean, if
7: you took a whiff from the bottle, you'd yeah. be like, why would I ever add right. this to anything? I mean, fish
2: sauce, first of all, if you go get a really good brand, they are I did. first pressed. You know, it's the stuff that comes out of the barrel the first time. And secondly, use very small amounts of it. I mean, if you don't, I agree with you, a large amount, like in a sauce, you know, mm-hmm. I might use... Half a teaspoon? Yeah, to half a teaspoon. Oh.
6: I mean, it sounds like you
2: used a couple tablespoons or something.
6: Yes. Okay,
2: well, there you go. That'll do it.
7: What anchovies do to Caesar salad is sort of the je ne sais quoi. It's like the umami. It's like the salt. And I think that fish sauce does the same thing in right. the recipe. It used properly in recipes. The salt and the umami sort of at the base, you sometimes don't even taste you, you, the fish. You,
2: you should not be able to taste anything fishy. Yeah. Okay,
6: so less is more is
7: what you're telling me. Yeah,
2: just use, a, just use a very small amount. It's one of those secret ingredients you could add to a stew or a, or a soup, soup, just a tiny yeah. bit, and it gives you a little foundation, but no one will ever know it's there.
7: If you want to add a salty element to something, just a tiny bit, reach for
2: it and see what happens, and I think you'll be happy. Just use small amounts. Yeah. Red Boat is a good supermarket yes. fish sauce, but just don't use too much.
6: That's very helpful. Don't put Thank a you. lot
2: of it in the sauce.
6: <laughs> yeah. All right. <laughs> okay. And All right. will circle back and try it again. Yeah. Yeah. All right, Nadina.
2: Thank, you, so Thank okay, you. Take care. Mm-hmm. Bye. Bye-bye.
12: Bye-bye.
2: Welcome to Milk Street. Who's calling?
12: Hi, this is Taryn.
2: How are you? Where are you calling from?
12: I'm good, thank you. I'm calling from the Seattle area.
2: So how can we help you?
12: I have a question about malted barley. After uh, stumbling around with digestive issues for years, I finally figured out that I'm allergic to barley, not wheat or gluten. Hmm. And with more research, I realized that most flour-based products have malted barley in them, And nearly every all-purpose flour has malted barley in it, too. So I've completely given up on eating bread from restaurants, bakeries, grocery stores, because even if it's not listed in the ingredients, I often have a reaction to it. So my question is, what is the purpose of malted barley flour? Is it a taste factor, a texture component? What does it add?
2: Um, Sarah, she's the expert when I don't know the answer. Um, I think it's because... Uh, yeast feeds off it, right? As, yeah, as a food. yeah it, give, it gives it sort of a jump start. A, a jump yeah. start, exactly. I think that's why.
7: But, you know, uh, I believe that pastry and cake flour don't have added malted barley. So if you were going to start baking at home, or are you baking at home?
12: I do bake at home. I just look at the ingredients. Mm-hmm. So like Bob's Red Mill, they have a few flours that do not have any malted barley in it. But just like you said, the donuts and cakes, I can buy those and eat those. Those are fine.
7: Yeah, yeah. But
12: I'm just curious why they're so often in even crackers, which I would think are not yeasted.
2: Well, that's an excellent point. That is Well let's go back. So I would assume big mistake. That on the packaging, like King Arthur flour, for example, if there was malted flour right barley in it, it would be on the package. Is that correct or not?
12: Yes, it is. There'll
2: be an ingredients list. So does something like King Arthur have malted barley in it?
12: Yes. Yes. You know,
7: it's silly because you could also sugar, and, and there's also sugar and flour. You know, sugar and starch would give the same jumpstart to yeast. So why do they have to add malted barley? I don't know. But that's apparently
2: the point—is it gives it sort of a start? Because somebody somewhere has a warehouse full of malted barley, and they figure it's—you know—it's like corn syrup, right? Right, I mean, that's why we have ethanol. Right. So your answer now is: you just use Bob's Red Mill flour, or you just stay away from it entirely?
12: No, I do eat flour. I make bread at home. You know, I just make sure that it's stuff that doesn't have the malted barley in it.
2: That's Mm. really interesting. Well, I don't think when they put malted barley in flour, like a five-pound bag or something, I don't think they're putting very much in it. It's not one pound of malted barley to four pounds of flour. It's just I, a very small amount. I don't amount. think it's
7: there for flavor at all. Yeah. I think it's more for the chemical reaction.
2: Maybe malted <laughs> barley reacts with baking soda, or baking powder in some way. Of course, crackers probably don't use either of those. It's crazy.
7: Why would you use it in crackers?
2: Sarah, yes. your job, yes. if you choose to accept it, is to figure out why they put malted barley in crackers. Okay. Let's find out. Okay. I will okay. find out. I'm making a note. Make I've a got note. a pen here. Good. <laughs> okay, You're really so old-fashioned. Yes. Taryn, thank you very much. That was a great
12: question. Yes, Taryn. Yeah, terrific. Yeah. yeah. Thank you. I appreciate right. your help. Take, okay. Take, care, take care. Have a good day. Bye-bye.
2: You're listening to Mill Street Radio. If you have a cooking question, give us a call, 855-426-9843. That's 855-426-9843. Or email us at questions at milkstreetradio.com. Welcome to Milk Street. Who's calling?
13: Hi, this is Paige.
2: Hi, Paige. Where are I'm you calling from? I'm calling from Colorado. Okay.
13: Um, I have a question about compatibility of recipes. So okay. um, we are subscribers to Milk Street at our house, and we Good. make a lot of, we've been trying to cook our way through each issue. And my husband and I have a bit of a disagreement about whether we can just mix and match any recipes or whether we should stick with a certain region in pairing our recipes together. I wondered if you had any guidance on that.
2: Well, give me an example. What are two of the things you want to pair together and your husband says, no, wait, <laughs> do just
13: well, so The whoa. last one that we had a dispute about was hoisin' glaze baby back ribs yep. with the bagna cotta and steamed broccoli. And I said, no way, Jose.
2: I'm with you. <laughs> First of all, I don't tend to make a lot of dishes. I'd make one dish and I serve it with something simple like a salad or rice or something. I think if you had a profile from Thailand and mix that with something from North Africa and then something from Oaxaca. Yeah, I just think that's weird. Sarah?
12: Well,
7: Wonderful. You know, it's interesting because... Uh, I think she
2: just wants to get off the call now. We, <laughs> we, we gave her the answer she wanted, but yeah, what do Yeah,
7: we said you win. Yeah. So she's like, okay, I'm good. I'm done. You know, I think... So I'm of two minds. One is I like to keep it within the cuisine. For me, what's more important is if I'm eating a meal and everything is sweet or everything is acid or everything is fatty, I don't like that. That's a good point. So I'd rather have something, let's say something's fatty in the meal. I don't care what nationality it is. Then I want some sort of acidic dish to go with it. If you've got something spicy, you're going to want to have something either dairy or sweet. You know, that sort of thing. So that's where I would go.
2: If you have a profile with white pepper, fish sauce, et cetera, from Cambodia, whatever, and then you have a dish that's cumin and coriander, et cetera, lentils from the Middle East, I can't get my head around that shifting to clash. gears too much. I agree, that yeah. clashes. Mm. I think there's one exception to the rule. There are recipes from different cultures, like simple salads and things. Like, you know, guacamole or hummus can go with a lot of different things. So there's some fairly neutral recipes that are not, Extreme examples of the spice flavor or the flavor profile of that region of the world that can go with almost anything. In Milkshake, for example, there's a Gazan guacamole, right, with sesame seeds and yogurt and, and with the avocado. That could be used in many different guises. But if you have something that's very particular to a region, I think you can't mix regions.
7: I agree with you, Paige, about the hoisin ribs and the banyakauda. I don't think I'd like that either. Doesn't make well, sense. What
6: would you pair
13: with the saffron risotto?
2: Well, saffron risotto, you could pair with almost anything. I mean, you have a grilled meat or grilled fish or something. You could have a protein of some kind. It could be a first course, like they would do that in Italy, and then you just have a second course, which is meat or fish. That's fine. That has, a, obviously, a saffron taste, but besides that, it's not very complicated. It's, it's not challenging. It's yeah. creamy. Okay. It's
7: cheesy. Anyway Paige, anyway, Paige, I think Paige, you're right. But you're I think right. Your husband is actually a little right, too. I think sometimes it's okay to have different dishes from different cuisines as long as their flavor profiles work well together.
2: Sarah's always wants people to be happily married. And so that's why <laughs> she's <laughs> well, trying he'll to throw... A, when
13: I pass that along. I'll give him that challenge. Throw okay. a okay. Paige, right. thanks for calling.
2: Thanks for calling.
6: <laughs> Thank you. Okay. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.
2: Now it's time for the unpredictable and also uncensored Dan Pashman. Dan, how are you? I'm doing well. Chris, how are you? Pretty good. Um, what do you got for me this week?
0: So you know, Chris, the the what has now become a sort of classic food debate is a hot dog a sandwich? In recent years, has taken on new dimensions. You, you you thought that that was a simple sort of a fun social media debate. You know, you argue, you move on. You know, ha ha ha. You're right. Turns out that the way that we define our foods has legal implications. It has tax implications. So, for example, in the state of Colorado, certain bars are required to serve sandwiches and snacks in order to maintain their liquor licenses. So the the bars went to the, the law officials and said, what does that mean? What are sandwiches? So a ruling was issued that said sandwiches, as used in Articles 47 and 48 of Title 12 CRS, are defined as single-serving items such as hamburgers, hot dogs, frozen pizzas, burritos, chicken wings, etc. What? Right. I mean, this is a real problem. I mean, like, like why do we even have words if a chicken wing is a sandwich?
2: <laughs> Are you going to be on the Supreme Court soon? I I hope so. So chicken wings are now sandwiches. According to Colorado,
0: as are, by the way, burritos. And this is more of a gray area. What's your take on burritos, Chris? Are burritos sandwiches?
2: No, they're burritos. So are there other places where sandwiches are misdescribed? Well, so so
0: this is another interesting uh, bit of case law I thought I would share with you, Chris. Uh, This happened a few years back. In your home state of Massachusetts, in Worcester, Mass., there was a Panera that had one of their you know bread sandwich places in a strip mall, and, and another company came in and wanted to open a burrito joint in the same strip mall. And Panera's lease says no other sandwich shops in the strip mall. So Panera said you can't open a burrito shop here because burritos are sandwiches. And the case went to court, and a judge in Massachusetts ruled that a burrito is not a sandwich. So this is, uh, this is not a federal issue. This is a state-by-state state issue. The USDA has its own definition of a sandwich, which is essentially two pieces of bread or a split roll with meat or poultry inside, which seems terribly outdated. Like, like, according to the USDA, there's no such thing as a vegetarian sandwich. Like, a grilled cheese is not a sandwich. Well, there's no such thing as a
2: grilled cheese sandwich or a peanut butter sandwich. Right. I mean, does that not strike you as ludicrous? Essentially, since sandwich is in the title of the dish. yeah. <laughs>
0: but but originally, if you look at, at newspaper articles from Coney Island in the late 18, early
2: 1900s, they called it a hot dog sandwich. Do you think anything uh, that is meaty is a sandwich or do you think are you a strict constitutionalist
0: here? Um, I agree with you that a burrito is not a sandwich. Uh, I do believe that a hot dog is a sandwich because I am a strict constructionist, Chris, and I do believe we should look at the framer's original intent. The Earl of Sandwich wanted a food that he could pick up and eat with his hands, and and not get his hands dirty. Some people say he was addicted to gambling and he needed his hands free to gamble. Some people said that it was because he was running the Royal Navy and he was just very busy. Maybe he was very busy running the Royal Navy and gambling. But the point is, he needed to eat on the go. And so he put some meat between two pieces of bread, and the sandwich was born. and And I think that the criteria for a sandwich are twofold. First of all, you need to be able to pick it up and eat it without your hands touching the fillings. That's an excellent
2: definition. I like
0: that. And then the other thing is is that the fillings must be sandwiched between two discrete food items. It does not have to be bread, but you got to have two discrete food items. Now, I know what you're saying, Chris. You're saying two discrete food items, but a hot dog is on a bun. A bun is one food item. It's one piece of bread. But I think that the hinged bun or sliced roll should count because it's like a meatball sub. Like, you're not going to tell me a meatball sub is not a sandwich. Of course it's a sandwich, right?
2: You now sound exactly like a constitutional lawyer standing in front of the Supreme Court arguing about the definition of a sandwich. <laughs> <laughs> I'll take that as a compliment, Chris. I mean, look,
0: I, I, you're going to get a kick out of this, but I actually, this is 100% true. The, like like that case in, in Worcester, Mass., with the Panera and the, burri- and the burrito place, there was an ex- almost identical case in Canada, and I was called as an expert witness. And I had to write an affidavit. What did the affidavit say? What was the case? It said that a burrito is not a sandwich. And so the burrito place should be able to be open next to the sandwich place. And and for the reason I laid out my definition of a sandwich, I said that a burrito is a a wrap. People don't like when I call it a wrap because they think of like American sandwich wraps, which are often not so good. But the truth is like a wrap is just a name for a structure. And so a burrito is a wrap. And that's where I stand. Well, I just want listeners to Milk Street
2: to know that they've heard it here first.
0: That's right. I just wish that our politicians would stop grandstanding and start talking about the real issues in our country. I mean, we have different states. They can't agree. The USDA says it has to have meat in it to be a sandwich. I mean, what, what are these people doing with our taxpayer dollars of not sorting out these pressing legal issues, Chris?
2: Dan Pashman, thank you for the legal uh, definition of a sandwich. Uh, I will remember that always. Thank you, Dan. Thanks, Chris. That was Dan Pashman of The Spark Hashman says that a burrito is not a sandwich, it's a wrap. So inquiring culinary minds might also ask, when is a soup a stew or when is a cake a tort? Cooking and eating are full of uncertainties, and that's why cooking is called an art. So here's an idea. Let's just enjoy the hot dog instead of worrying about, legally speaking, whether it's really a sandwich. That's it for today. If you tuned in late or just want to listen again, you can download and subscribe to Milk Street Radio on your favorite podcast app. To learn more about Milk Street, visit 177milkstreet.com. There you can download each week's recipe, take an online cooking class, and order our latest cookbook, Milk Street Tuesday Nights. You can also find us on Facebook at Christopher Kimball's Milk Street, on Instagram and Twitter at 177milkstreet. We'll be back next week, and thanks, as always, for listening.
10: Christopher Kimball's Milk Street Radio is produced by Milk Street in association with WGBH. Executive producer Melissa Baldino, senior audio editor Melissa Allison, producer Annie Sinzabaugh. associate producer Jackie Nowak, production assistant Stephanie Cohn, and production help from Debbie Paddock. Senior audio engineer Douglas Sugars, additional editing from Vicki Merrick, Sydney Lewis, and Haley Fager and audio mixing from Jay Allison at Atlantic Public Media in Woods Hole, Massachusetts. Theme music by Chewbub Crew. Additional music by George Brendel Egloff. Christopher Kimball's Milk Street Radio is distributed by PRX.